Hello, and welcome to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. My guest today is Rhea Elias. Her memoir, Harley Loco, has just come out in paperback, and I'm delighted to have you on the show today. Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. Thank you. So this is a memoir about a lot of different things, all of which I'm hoping we're going to hit in turn during the course of this conversation. But let's start back at the very beginning about you growing up in Syria before you came to the United States. You know, I was born in Syria in 1960, and in the early 60s, it was actually, it was amazing. I was born in Aleppo. I remember growing up, I lived there till I was almost eight, so I remember it being very cosmopolitan and just beautiful. We had amazing full-floor flat in a building, and there was no religious tension really back then. We were, you know, my neighbor downstairs was a Turk, Germans, there were... French in our building and the Muslim family, you know, that lived in, and it was just such a mix. Everybody seemed to just get along beautifully back then. And then my, my father, nationalization sort of started happening and, and my dad decided to go for an education and leave. I think he started feeling a little bit of political tension back then, yeah. And then you and your family came to the States and were basically plunged into the riots of Detroit of the late 60s. Exactly, exactly. We went from one thing to the next. So, yeah, we got to Detroit in late 67 and, you know, it was full blown. I mean, we weren't downtown. We were just outside of the city limits, but there was a lot of chaos, a lot of chaos. So what was it like for you growing up as a teenager? in Detroit? You know, it was difficult. I mean, I, I came in as a, as a youngster. I spoke no English. It took me a few years just to learn how to speak English, learn how to drop the accent so I could fit in. Right. And your family had like no interest in assimilating. Is that no. Right? Yeah. Zero. Zero. Like they really wanted to keep all the values and all the customs and, and everything. And, you know, we were, it wasn't like we were covered up. I mean, we were a Christian family, so we weren't we didn't have hajibs or anything like that, but we were inherently different anyway because we looked different. We moved to Warren, which is really white, Polish, uh, blue collar. And I was the only sort of dark person who was wearing really weird things out of French Vogue, you know, and had an accent and couldn't speak English. So it was difficult. Children are really, they're, they're mean, you know, when you don't really fit the mold, they, they can be really mean. So I was bullied quite a lot. And the only thing I ever wanted to do was lose the accent. So I literally would sit in front of a mirror and I would hear, listen to how the girls said, or the, the Americans said girl, and I would say it over and over because I would say girl. So I'd say it over and over, girl, 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 until my tongue, I trained it to sort of flip a certain way. And I think a lot of that has to do with why I was, a lot of that training has to do with why I was able to pick up music later just by ear because I had my ears trained so well to sort of help me to maneuver. And you sort of discovered music and hairdressing, which is your other career, like right around the same time. Yeah, almost at the exact same time. I went to college for a couple of years and it just wasn't for me. I just couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, I was like, I was not the studious type, let's just say. I barely graduated from high school and I went to community college and I was just like, oh my God, this is too much. I was on too many drugs. I was taking a lot of drugs. It was the 70s. And so I I was in this club and I was in the bathroom and this kid walked in with a with a clipper and he was like, 
will you cut a mohawk for me? And I was like, what? I can't. I don't know how to cut a mohawk. He was like, come on, it's easy. You just shave both sides. And, and I said, okay. So in the bathroom, I, I gave him this little mohawk and I did a really good job. And people started calling me to cut their hair for five bucks, you know? So I was like, wow, this could be a great career. And I'm interested in it because I'm kind of good at it. So I told my father and he wasn't very happy about it because he just really wanted us to have an education. But I went to hair school during the time that I was actually going out to see bands and really sort of, sort of exploring who I was and where I wanted to, to fit. And punk rock was happening and it was like, if you were a reject or if you felt the way that I felt, which I felt like a reject at the time, then that was sort of a home for you. So I started, both of them sort of came at me at the same time and they worked really well together. And while this was going on, you were in a relationship with a guy where it was becoming increasingly clear that not only was this relationship a mistake, relationships with guys in general was a mistake. In general were mistakes, yes. That was really difficult for me because I had come from this traditional Syrian upbringing where you didn't even leave your house unless you got married. You didn't even have a strange boy over unless... He was coming over to basically ask to court you. I mean, it was that traditional back then. And here I was in my mind, in my heart, everywhere, knowing that that was never going to work for me, that the boyfriend that I had at the time was something that I could just, and, and I had to break through so hard to even gain a boyfriend that I held on to him so drastically. But deep down, I knew that it wasn't right and nothing felt right about it and I knew that I was a lesbian and there was no way that I could stay in Detroit and deal with my own homophobia about being gay much else deal with my families so that was really the catalyst that and the band and the the hair to move me to New York but I knew that if I came to New York I would feel a liberation and a freedom especially with my sexuality that I could explore because I didn't know I mean I knew that guys weren't for me I wasn't I knew that when I kissed the girl it was like oh my god this is what they're talking about but I was so afraid you know I was so afraid of my own undoing which became a self-fulfilling prophecy anyway, but yeah. yeah. And we should emphasize that while New York was a liberating experience in a lot of ways, being gay or lesbian in America in the late 1970s, early 80s is a profoundly different experience than it is today. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it was a lot easier in New York because of the club scenes in New York back then and because of the art scene in New York and music scene. But yes, outside of this little microcosm that we had here in the downtown area, because of punks and new wave and this and that, you couldn't really tell who was gay and who wasn't back then. But as far as generally in America, it was pretty much impossible. I knew people that were killing themselves because they just couldn't, they couldn't accept it. They couldn't, you know, their families, our society was just not the way it is now. It's just so, I know it's not easy, but for somebody like me, it feels really easy now. Like I, I know people that just come out when they're 12 or even younger or a little older. In high school, are you kidding me? Back then, 1976, trying to say that you were gay, you would have been a I don't want to say that, you know, I don't want to be reductive and say that the drugs were an outlet solely for all this confusion about your your sexual identity and your relationships as you were struggling. I mean, that's 
maybe a part of it, but it seems like there was a lot more going on that led to the escalating drug use. I think that, first of all, I think that the obsession with anything is what leads to the obsession and, and with drugs, right? So I, I feel like even as, as a kid, I was obsessed. Like, I just couldn't get enough of anything. And so because I was so locked up inside about the sexuality and the past and, you know, some people's makeup is just different where you just can't let it out. And so I think that my first sort of spiritual solution, what I reached for, was the drug because that sort of unlocked me a little bit. It helped me to move past all of those barriers that that I felt like I that contained me. That was my first experience with it and it was amazing. Not only was I able to fit in, but I was also able to be comfortable in my own skin and 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 able to just be freer. When the harder drugs started happening and in the scene they were happening here in New York and um, in the art scene, in the music scene. And when I was looking up to see who were the people that I was mostly attracted to in my life, they were the people who were out there using drugs and still having these lives that were beyond my imagination and even interpretation that I could ever have such a life, right? And they were doing it and they seemed effed up. You know, I don't know if I can swear, but... And, and they, they seem to be doing a really good job at being everything. And I thought, wow, I can do that. The, the problem with me is once I started down that road, I couldn't stop. Like, I, I, I partied with so many people that could. And with me, there was a chemical, there was a switch. And when that switch turned on, there was nothing I could do to stop. You know, it was like a freight train just going 200 miles an hour down a hill. And there was nothing that was going to stop that. Right. You were only a functioning addict for a very short time. And you write very frankly about how it not only eventually started screwing up with your stylist career, but also the music career that you were trying to get off the ground at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, it took its toll on everything. One of my favorite things to say is that when I'm getting high, I'm a legend in my own mind, right? So when I was getting high and I was getting a lot of props and a lot of people were paying attention to me. I became a huge legend in my own mind and I believed that lie. So it really undid me. When I was playing at the, the new music seminar on this showcase at the time, I had had a development deal with this incredible manager who was just putting money into me, giving me money to develop as the, the new sort of star. And all of a sudden I stopped doing the hard work. I stopped the rehearsals, you know, three, four times a week. I stopped the, the singing lessons and the, just the practice, the practice and the consistency because I believed what he was telling me. I believed what they were feeding me. And I, I believed in that limo and the glamour and what the crack and the heroin gave me was just like this huge shot of invincibility that was just not true and it really undid me and it undid me so quickly because not only did I lose the 40 grand but I lost the manager and you know I couldn't drive out to Connecticut to teach anymore and I couldn't keep a job here in the city anymore I ended up on a park bench literally and before the park bench you were in the East Village which again I don't want to simplify this but you know it's not a question of you became a raging addict, so you ended up in the East Village, or you were in the East Village and ended up becoming a raging addict. But East Village, New York, in the mid-80s, was sort of drug central. 
Absolutely. Now it's called East Village. It was Alphabet City. It was east of First Avenue. The East Village was between 4th and 1st, and, and it was holding all the, the art and music, but like very few people went east of First Avenue because that was like Heroin Alley. That was where you went if if you had balls. That was where you went if you wanted to cop. That was sort of the underbelly of all of the, the crap that was that was filtering out of there. And you know, I couldn't afford to live anywhere else. I was I was a I was a drug addict. But even before I was a drug addict, I couldn't afford to live anywhere else. Because even back then, that was the most affordable real estate in the city. You know, you could get a one bedroom for two hundred bucks a month, whereas you go, you know, four blocks west and you were paying seven. And so I know that sounds cheap now, but we all did go there, and I went there because I really liked that cross that cross culture. I liked the danger of it. You know, it made me feel alive again. It was like it was like punk rock. It was like you didn't know what was going to happen and from where. When we walked down the streets back then, there were cars blown out to the right and to the left, and you know, there's still rats everywhere. But you know, buildings just with tunnels going from one street to the next and completely completely broken down and you know just walls and people that were squatting everywhere and living with campfires and i mean it was just a whole different scale of of decimation that that we saw and i was very comfortable in that i had a great apartment there and it held me for all of those years to do what i really needed to do and then that even became too much for me to handle so let's talk about that bottoming out point what was the point at which <laughs> you realized things had to turn around. There were many different points. The first time that things I knew had to turn around, I was living at Tonkin Square Park, and I was living in Tent City. And me and Tommy Robertson from Polyrock, he was a dear friend of mine. He's passed away now, but he had this bench, and he had this tent, and I had this awesome, awesome apartment on 2nd Street and Avenue, 2nd uh, Street between A and B, across the street from Lucky 7, which was one of the biggest dope houses in the city, and I was evicted. And as I was being evicted, I thought I would turn a trick. And I had ne never turned a trick before. I'd always hustled the guys out of their money. And this guy took me literally for the ride of my life. And the book opens with that scene, and it's it's horrible and horrific, and I ended up being stuck in this little hole in the wall with a Vietnam vet who was literally, you know, had guns and, and everything, and I managed to get out of there, and I didn't have a place to go, and I ended up going to see my friend in the park, and he said, of course you can live here on my bench with me or in my tent. You know, you're welcome to stay here. And during this time, my sister, who lived in Michigan, had contacted my ex-lover and said, you know, we hadn't seen each other in a year and a half. Nobody had heard from me. And my ex-lover brought her to the park. And this was this, the first moment that I actually saw myself through her eyes. And it's funny because it took me seven years to actually really get sober after she rescued me from the park that first time. And the last time that I actually really turned it around was after my mother's death. And she came to me, and I know it sounds like bullshit, but she came to me and I saw myself again through my mother's eyes. And that was the point, that was the final point where I turned it all around. Because I saw myself 
through her eyes as if she had just walked into this room. I tried to OD and I couldn't even kill myself. I, you know, I did six bags of dope and half a gram of cocaine in one shot. And I thought for sure that's going to kill me. I'm not going to wake up from this. It's, you know, it's over. I'm done. I've tried, you know, I've taken it to the, to the furthest that anybody could go. Institutions, jails, prison, and I can't live like this anymore. And I wouldn't die. I like woke up in the morning. I mean, I, I thought, okay, I'm going down. I felt myself sort of ODing. And then I woke up in the morning and I was like, what the hell? And I saw the scene. I saw it so clearly. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Let me try something new. And I had nobody left in my life. You know, a friend of mine asked me a couple weeks ago, what do you think could have gotten you sober sooner? And I thought, and I said, if people would have left sooner, I might have gotten sober sooner. But they didn't. You know, people don't want to leave you sooner. They think you're going to die. Well, you know, you're going to die anyway, or you're not. So how long ago was that? It was 16 and a half years ago. I got, I got clean in August of 1997. And at what point in those 16 and a half years did you decide that this was a story that you wanted to share, not just with those closest to you, but to put out into the into the wider world? You know, it took me a few years just to wrap my head around what had happened to me. And then I started talking to friends, uh, Corey Clark being one of them, who was my drummer, my confidant, my best friend for years. And he just kept saying, Rhea, let's make this into a movie. Let's make a show. Let's pitch a show to HBO. That's what he kept saying. Called The Junkies. And because, you know, I started telling these stories and with no pity, you know, I didn't want to be on a pity pot. And they kind of started becoming this sort of cinematic thing in my head where I tell the story and it would kind of be funny and it would be tragic and, and sad. And, and I said, I can't make a movie. Are you kidding me? Like, the, who am I? I'm a musician. You know, I'm a hairdresser. He was like, dude, we used to make videos back in the day. He's let's do it. So we did. We took that story, the eviction story, and and I said, let me take the, the worst possible story ever that ever happened to me, and let me make that into a movie. And I did. And it was, had I known how hard it was going to be to do and how much money it was going to cost at the time, I would have never done it. But... I just thought, yeah, what could, you know, what could be so hard? It'll be a little shoot, a little editing. It was an eight-day shoot. I had to cast in a theater. And and it became a half-hour featurette called Anonymous. And when we showed it at the Two Boots, Filmmaker Magazine came. And the publisher wrote it up. Uh, he wrote me up as one of the 25 new faces to watch. And I was like, what? So I start getting a lot of attention for the film which made, made me think, maybe there is something to this. Maybe there is something to being able to tell these stories on a bigger scale. So I made another movie, and I went and I did this pitch, and, you know, and all of it to say that I'm not a filmmaker, although I can do it, but it was just a great venue to tell a story and to make music, to make the film. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was editing in the... I was directing in the edit room basically in the end and it was a lot of fun but and then my friend Elizabeth Gilbert who had been a hair client of mine from since the year 2000 you know it's before any of her big success happened and she kept watching me do these things like making a movie and then making another movie and then I'd say I'm gonna go record some music and I do it she came back from Bali and she said Ray I think you should write a book 
And I was like, a book? That's crazy. I, I'm not a, I'm not a writer. I'm not a book writer. I'm not a literary person. I'm like this punk rock kid who's not really educated. And she said, you're a storyteller. Anyone that can sit with my family and tell a story and captivate them is a storyteller. Cause she's like, they're a really hard bunch to captivate. And she's like, and you've got these amazing stories. Why don't you just try? And I was like, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. So maybe a year or so went by. And then she had this writing space up in New Jersey, which was this church house that she bought. And she had moved on into another house. And she said, come here for nine months and write. And I was like, what's the catch? I just didn't get it. Why anybody would be so supportive and give me the space to do this. She kept saying, I believe in you, but it was really kind of a dare. You know, I thought, okay, what do I have to lose? I was going through a divorce of eight years to this woman. And I thought, okay, I have two dogs. I have a little apartment and I don't really know what my next move is. I have some money saved up and I don't know what my next move is. So let me try. And I went out there and I started writing and it took me a couple of months to really even get in any kind of groove because I would just cry because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had a copy of Strunk and White's Element of Style, so I could just see what not to do. I was doing morning pages every every day, just writing them out and just basically, you know, shedding all the stuff. And then I started sort of stringing those stories together. And once they were strung together, then the fillers getting deeper and everything started happening. And I had a first draft in nine months. Now, you had obviously done a lot of emotional work in processing this in the 10 plus years that you had been sober up to that point, but still directly engaging with that history again in the art of writing the memoir. What was that like? It was, it was difficult in so many ways. And then it was really easy. The stories came easy, but like you said, I'd been in therapy for a long time. So I'd been unearthing all of these things, but the solitude of three years of writing with two dogs in a completely rural area in a church unhinged me, literally. Talk about a cathartic experience. So the telling of the stories was not the easy part, was, was the easy part. The, what came after I told the stories and after they were actually in black and white on a computer screen and going back and going a level deeper, because once those were unearthed, then I had to sit with the feelings of what happened after telling the stories and how I really felt after those incidents happened to me and how Rhea now felt about who Rhea was then. There were a lot of layers of guilt and shame that I had to deal with. And the part that I really wanted to alleviate in my book were those. I, I wanted to go in again, head first and head strong and not be on that pity pot, you know, because everyone has those issues of guilt and shame and all of that. And I, I wanted people to feel my responsibility in doing that to myself and not be like, oh, this happened to me and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't want any of that. Or at the opposite end, it seems that for some people, perhaps, telling these stories or, or coming up with these entertaining stories of, you know, oh, my years as an addict and this wild, crazy shit that I did becomes 
another sort of masking or another sort of subterfuge or a way of not really dealing with the stuff, but just sort of turning it into entertaining anecdotes. And and you didn't you're, what you're describing is not wanting to do that, not wanting to like boil this down to like a, an amusing little story, but to like actually make it something emotionally raw and, and absolutely i mean when i sat with liz the first time when she read my first draft she said to me the first 50 pages stink and the last 50 pages stink but the 200 pages in the middle this is where your meat and potatoes are what do you want to tell people why are you doing this i was like well you, you kind of made me but she's like here we are what do you want to tell people and i said well there's something in me at, at that time, 13 years sober or 12 years sober, that I want to help people. But that's boring on its own. And she was like, you have to entertain people. You are a born entertainer. So to take those two and to merge those two, I think is a really profound tool. No, I don't want to just, just entertain and tell the stories when there's no substance and there's no grit and there's no realness underneath them and there's no lessons you know i mean those stories are only good because they're true uh, they're not made up and because there's a profound realistic lesson underneath there you know and that's what i wanted to convey i wanted to convey that if i can do this anybody can do it and yet there's some entertaining qualities about it as well so having put yourself through that kind of emotional ringer to do this what do you think about continuing to write I'm really enjoying it. Writing for me has been like therapy, right? So uh, to write this book was a, a huge sort of a therapeutic lesson and it came out great. You know, I was able to actually sell it. I, I didn't start out thinking that. I had no clue. I was just doing it as an exercise. And the exercise of writing has really pulled me through since I finished writing Harley Loco. I think the most important thing to me has been sitting down, you know, not every morning, but when I have an assignment every morning and working, and that has been such a wonderful focus for me. I love it. There's nothing that gets between me and that. Like, life is just all over the place, and I wear so many different hats, you know. I still cut hair, doing hair this afternoon after we finish. You know, I sell real estate, I do this, I do music. But there's that solitude and that oneness with me and my own head, which is a really bad neighborhood most of the time to be in. And the writing helps as that vehicle to sort of get it all out. So I am continuing writing. It's uh, it's this amazing, amazing sort of exercise for me. And I'm doing good. I'm, I'm working on a novel next. Well, that gives us something to look forward to in the future. <laughs> in the meantime, the memoir is Harley Loco. It's just come out in paperback from Penguin. I have been talking to the author, Rhea Elias, and you have been listening to Life Stories. Now, if you're subscribed to this podcast through iTunes, thank you for that. If you're not subscribed yet, it's very easy to do and you won't miss an episode in the future. Either way, if you might take a moment to rate or review the podcast, it makes it a little bit easier for the next person to find it. I'm Ron Hogan. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again for another episode soon. Take care.